G'day, Dave here, and we're looking at Mark chapters 9 to 16. Earlier this year, we picked up Mark chapters 1 to 8 at Salt Church, and if you were with us for those weeks, we focused on who Jesus is, what Mark is uh, telling us about Jesus, about what he came to do, and about how we should respond to him. And God willing, these will be the same questions that we keep asking Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is kind of like a biography of Jesus, a history of this man, And I confess to having a bit of a love-hate relationship with history. It probably stems back to high school. Uh, I was told that I needed to do a language. I didn't want to do a language. So then it meant that I had to do history. Uh, If you didn't do a language, you had to do both history and geography. Geography I didn't mind doing. uh, But history I wasn't too keen on. And probably it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I hated it. I didn't like the teacher. And so I was never going to like history. But it didn't seem to make much sense to me. I mean, who cares why Alexander was called great or Hannibal crossed the Alps? And who really cares about the free settlers and when this land was discovered and who circumnavigated this island and so on? And I just didn't really get it. Now, historians have helped me to understand that there are some significant things with history. People have left a mark. Um, and that mark sometimes has been for good, sometimes it's been for bad. It's interesting looking at the way people are now reviewing history and tearing down statues and so on and seeing the things that people have done in the past need not to be celebrated but to be denigrated. And uh, others would say, no, you've got to see those things still. You need to learn the lesson from the past. Uh, There's been a mark that's been set. Others would point to, say, a great... A composer who's produced wonderful music like Mozart or Beethoven and and how we have been influenced by their music down through the centuries. Uh, Or maybe somebody who's discovered a a, a great thing. Uh, Maybe uh, uh, they've invented something like the modern computer or they've uh, helped us to understand how the DNA structures work or, or maybe created penicillin so that we can Uh, have antibiotics to get over infections. I mean, incredible things, uh, leaving a mark. But you don't need, do you, to know who it was who found that penicillin was an antibiotic. You don't need to know who it was who composed the piece of music to enjoy the music. Others would say, no, it's it's more than that. The people are involved. There are people who've set us an example. Um, You look someone like Martin Luther King, for example, and here is a man who at great cost, it took took his own life eventually, but stood up and said, it doesn't matter about the color of our skin. Uh, All people were created to be equal. And he dreamed of a time when people wouldn't be judged by the color of their skin. And, uh, And this is an issue that's still going on today. And people haven't learned from the example of Martin Luther King. But others would say, well, does it really matter that it was Martin Luther King? I mean, yes, he's, he's set an example, and it's a good example, but we can move on from that, and we don't need to keep celebrating the past. What's more important is we keep looking to the future. Well, how does Jesus fit into our view of history? Is he just uh, an ancient figure that we can disregard? Is he irrelevant? Is he somebody who's kind of left a mark? And he's certainly left a mark, hasn't he? I mean, look at the modern calendar, for example. I know there's a move to change it, but it's pretty much still BC and AD, and it hinges on the person of Jesus. And we now live in 2020 AD, the year of the Lord. Uh, Or people would say, no, he's, he's left a mark in terms of ethics and morality. And so much of, of our society has been built on and shaped by Judeo-Christian ethics. 
But then, of course, that's being gradually pulled down and, uh, and destroyed. Or others would say, no, look, he set a great example. There's no doubt about it. Look at the way that he treated people. Incredible uh, mercy and kindness. Uh, he really cared for the vulnerable. He was willing to tackle the hypocrites full on. Uh, he had this incredible ability to be firm and gentle and just the right time. In fact, he set an incredible example for us to follow in terms of serving other people. And we'll see that in Mark's gospel. But some would say, okay, so we've learned from Jesus. Do we really need to remember Jesus? Or is it just one who's come and given us an example? He's, he's left us with, with something that we do well to follow but we don't need the man Jesus anymore? Well, that's the question, friends. It's, it's an important question. Do we need Jesus? Well, we need to understand who he is and why he's come and what response he wants from us. I think if we're going to get answers to these questions. So I want to recap a little bit from the end of chapter 8 before we move on and start working our way through chapter 9. So pick it up with me at chapter seven, uh, chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on the, onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Here's the who is he question. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. I mean, they've got the right ballpark, haven't they? He's clearly a, an incredible figure. He's been out there in the wilderness. He's been speaking in prophetic ways. He's been doing prophetic types of things. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? He's asking his followers. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. Uh, now, it's a profound thing that Peter has just said. You are the Messiah. There are hundreds of years of history behind this. There was a promise that God made to send his Messiah, his anointed king, the Christ. Here is the one who has been promised and the Jewish people have been waiting for him for a thousand years or thereabouts. And so when Peter says, you are the Messiah, it's like a climax. It's like history has come to an important point. Here it is. This is what we've all been waiting for. And Peter's pretty excited. Now, Jesus, verse 30, says uh, that they shouldn't tell anyone about him. Why is this? Well, I think it's because they don't yet get it. So he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after, after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So the first question, who is he? He's the Messiah. Second question, what did he come to do? Well, Jesus says he's come to suffer, be rejected by the people and the, and the rulers of Israel, and that he's, he's come to die, to be killed, to be murdered, and after three days to rise again. That's what he's come to do. He's come to die effectively. And Peter, then notice verse 32, takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Peter will not have this. Jesus is the Messiah. So how can it be that God's anointed king is going to rule the kingdom forever can be killed? It doesn't fit. It's a, it's a kind of um, square peg in a round hole thing. It just doesn't fit. You can't push this understanding of a Messiah into, into what Peter was expecting with the Messiah. It doesn't work. Ruler, powerful figure, going to overthrow the Romans, going to set up a new kingdom. No, Jesus says he's come to die and then be raised from the dead. Well, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, and then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter. 
And he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, at this point, has got it so wrong, so diabolically wrong, that Jesus uh, tells him that it's, his response is merely human and that it's actually satanic, deep down. And then he goes on to say what he expects of us, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So Jesus is going to have his cross. He's going to die upon it. And now he's telling us to take up our crosses and to follow him, which means to die upon it. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can you give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, this is quite a conundrum, isn't it? I mean, here you've got Jesus, the Messiah, but yet the Messiah has come to die. And Jesus is saying, come with him and, and die with him. And then he's saying, if, if you actually look to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life in following him, then you will save it. And there's no benefit to you in hanging on to everything that you possibly can in this life and yet losing your soul because you've then lost everything. So there's a lot to unpack in what's going on. And fortunately, we'll discover over the next eight chapters what it is that he's getting at. Now, the next event that takes place, I think, gives us a divine kind of angle, a divine viewpoint on what's going on with Jesus. And it's an extraordinary event that takes place. Let's pick it up in chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and he led them up a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say because they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, I want to unpack uh, what's going on in this extraordinary account, uh, this account that gets described as the transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured, takes on a different appearance uh, in front of them. And the first thing I want to pick up on is the voice that comes from heaven. And it's there for us in verse 7. A voice from the cloud says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, we've heard the voice come from heaven already. Uh, if you were reading through from the beginning, back in chapter 2, uh, I think it is, or maybe it's in chapter 1. No, it's in chapter 1, where Jesus 
is being baptized by John in the Jordan River. The voice comes from heaven that this is God's son whom he loves and with him he is well pleased. Here is the voice again. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Friends, what we've got here picks up on the Psalm 2 in the Old Testament where the Messiah King is declared to be God's own son. And it's like this voice is giving clarity about who Jesus is. The voice that comes from the cloud is giving us a clear picture that Jesus is that Messiah. Don't don't get it wrong. All sorts of things might be confusing here. You might have your expectations about what the Messiah has come to do, confusing you about whether or not he is the Messiah. God says he is. This is my son, whom I love. So listen to him. He's get divine approval. Psalm 2, listen to this one. But there's also more background going on. This is a, this is a curious incident because there are two other figures that appear. There's Moses. And there's Elijah. Let's, let's take each of them in turn. First of all, Moses. Now, Moses was the man through whom God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. Moses was the one who went up onto Mount Sinai and was given the law of God. God spoke to Moses from the clouds and he was given the Ten Commandments. So Moses was an incredible figure, a very significant person in Old Testament history. He was the saviour figure. He was the one who rescued them out of Egypt. He was the one that God spoke to and gave the people the law of God. And here he is. Here he is again with Jesus. And, and it's, uh, it's not the only connection, is it? Here they are again up on a high mountain. Here they are again with a cloud. Here is God speaking. And Moses is there. Now, friends, there's a background to this. It's not just that as in the past God spoke to Moses, so now God is speaking to Jesus. It's that in the Old Testament, back in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 18, I think it's verse 15, God promised that at the end of time, at at the right time, he would send Moses again. Um, And here is Moses. But, But it's not just send Moses again, but one's going to come like Moses, who will be the prophet that you need to listen to. Here is one who will come like Moses, who will be God's anointed saviour, that will come to be the shepherd of the people. Here is the one whom God will speak through. You see, here is Moses, but then Moses disappears and Jesus remains. He is the Moses figure. So too, there's background and connections with Elijah. Elijah had, uh, had a curious ending. I don't know if you know the story of Elijah, but there are two figures, two people in the Old Testament where there's no record of their death. Uh, They just kind of disappear. And Elijah is one of them who ascends to heaven in a chariot of fire. And the expectation, in fact, in the last two verses of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, the expectation is that God is going to send Elijah again before God returns to his people. Now, there are more connections again. Uh, back in the Old Testament, Elijah being the great prophetic figure in, in 1 Kings. Uh, there was a time when he felt that he was the only one who was following the will of God. And he's incredibly depressed and he's miserable. And he goes to Mount Horeb and he's hoping that God's going to kind of do another dramatic thing like he did with Moses. And God doesn't. He tells him to go back. And 
when, when you look at this, uh, this picture of Elijah and the expectation that Elijah is to come, um, there's a connection to Jesus that we might not see at first glance. And you get it when you go down to verse 11 and 12. After they're coming down from the mountain, they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wish, just as is written about him. How has Elijah come? Well, remember the way John the Baptist was described? He was the one out in the wilderness. He was the one wearing a garment of, of, uh, of camel's skin, and he was eating locusts and wild honey. And remember what they did to John the Baptist back in chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel. He is beheaded. See, here is the one who's coming before God comes amongst his people. Here is the one who's promised in the Old Testament that's going to turn up and then God the Saviour would be coming after him. And what happens to him when he turns up? He gets his head cut off. He's murdered. And so why is it said that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Well, he's just following after the one who would come before him. You see, it's twisting the box and the expectations and you've got more square pegs and round holes. They just can't understand this picture of the Messiah that Jesus is giving. Yes, Moses, but he's bigger than Moses and this will be God speaking through his king. Elijah, yes, but Elijah who came was then executed and, and Jesus too will be executed. See, there are, there are clues, there are lenses, there's facets to understand who Jesus is that we see in this extraordinary transfiguration event. And then, of course, you, you have the picture of Jesus. Um, look at verses uh, 2 and 3. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, where's this idea come from? Well, again, you find it in the Old Testament. If we go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, you notice as you read through Mark's gospel that Jesus keeps describing himself as the Son of Man. It's an interesting title because it's quite enigmatic. Uh, at one level, it simply means one who is born of a man, the Son of Man. He's a human being. But at another level... There is a great promise in the Old Testament, and I want to read to you from uh, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him and the court was seated and the books were opened. Now here's a picture of the Ancient of Days. It's a picture of God seated on his throne, ruling over all, and he's in dazzling white, just as the picture we see of Jesus in Mark 9. But then as we read on, down to verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
You see, here is another Old Testament idea. Here is God, the the Almighty, seated on the throne. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's dazzling white, and one like a son of man comes to him and is given authority to rule over all. You see, the image of the the, uh, Ancient of Days and the picture of the Son of Man are brought together here with Jesus, the Son of Man, being dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Friends, as you look at Mark's gospel, you're seeing things come to a climax, but it's an unexpected climax. Things are a little different. And what we need to see is that every thread of the Old Testament is kind of being pulled together and woven together to understand Jesus. Yes, he will be the chosen king. Yes, he will be the one who rules all kingdoms forever and ever. But the way he's going to do that, first of all, will be through dying on a cross and then rising from the dead. See, we're being called to respond to this Messiah. Who is he? Well, he is the one whom God has anointed. He is the one that God has promised. He is the answer to all of God's promises. He is the king who rules over this universe. But more than that, he's the king who has come to die. He's come to give his life as a ransom for many. He's come to give his life for you and for me. And he calls on us to put our trust in him. And we see that in this last story. Have a a look with me at this wonderful picture here. Verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and tossed around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he said. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Please help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked and convulsed him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. See, the disciples need to ask God. They need to pray. They need to seek God's help to do this. It's not a party trick, being able to drive out the demons. It's not a right that they have because they're following Jesus. No, they need to believe. They need to put their trust in Jesus. This man is called to put his trust in Jesus. And he does. In fact, you get these wonderful words in verse 24. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I find those words incredibly helpful. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. See, believing as a Christian isn't knowing everything for absolute certain. 
It's not having every piece of the puzzle absolutely in place, perfectly aligned, so that there's no other option but to be convinced. Now, I do believe, but please help me overcome my unbelief. There are doubts, there are struggles, there's confusion, there's chaos. There's all sorts of questions that you might have, and that's okay. Because as we come to Jesus, we're called to come with the attitude of believing and asking for help to believe. Will you do that? Have you done that? Will you keep doing that? Friends, here is a picture of Jesus as he really is. Yes, he's bigger and better and more amazing than we could ever imagine because he is God's appointed Messiah. He's the one who's going to rule this universe, but he's going to do it in an extraordinary way. And we'll see that before Jesus is placed in authority, he will die for our sin. He will be raised again from the dead and he calls us to follow him and to believe in him. Let's do that.